The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 12 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the bi-weekly program where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine, currently pondering the philosophical importance of chromium covers to the culture at large. I'm Adam. And still trying to figure out how Jim Lee, Stan Lee, and Jay Lee could be related. I'm Michael. And joining us tonight is a man who is no stranger to time travel. From the Wayback Attack podcast, it's Preston Burt. Welcome, welcome. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Excited to be on. Yeah, now, uh, Preston, you and I have been following each other online for a little while, and you were nice enough just a few weeks back to reach out and tell us you'd been listening to the show, you've been enjoying it, and that really meant a lot. But I'm just curious, how did you find us, and what was the process there? That came across my timeline, and it's one of those things where I saw the podcast... And I instantly was just so jealous that I didn't think of that idea first, that I was insanely mad. <laughs> it's all Adam. He, he's the brainchild. My obsessions, yes, they, they lead to some sort of creativity. But I'm curious for you as well, because you have a pretty awesome podcast yourself. I, I had a chance to listen and really got a kick out of it, especially because your episode where you were covering mall culture of yeah. the 80s and 90s, you actually name-checked my local mall that I went to growing up south coast plaza that's awesome yeah i couldn't afford to shop there but i <laughs> but i did walk around there and go to the warner brothers store and stuff like that but why don't you tell people a little bit about your show oh cool yeah thanks so Wayback attack was just conceived because like in this current age of reboots and things like that it seems like the, the past is now present so what we do is we take current affairs and new things that are happening and look back at the old stuff and re-examine that and, and kind of compare and contrast. Not a whole lot of new stuff going on right now, so we're, we're digging deep. But for example, when we first started the show, the the new Invisible Man movie had come out. So we looked at invisibility throughout pop culture. When the Super Bowl was happening, we took a look at some some great Super Bowl ads. And here recently, we, you know, now that summer's going on, our most recent episode, we were talking about summer camp and some great summer camp in uh, pop culture was like Salute Your Shorts and, and fun properties like that. So it's a good time. Did you ever go to camp, Michael? Did I go to camp? Uh, no, I, I asked to go to camp with my parents and they're like, no, you're probably going to get yourself killed somehow or like you know your underwear will end up on the flagpole like salute your shorts yeah you know i, I was i loved that show growing up i was also a big fan of the movie heavyweights i love oh, great that. Oh, yeah it's a good real good camp movie how about you adam did you go to camp closest i got was boy scout day camp so not even an official camp but we all get to wear matching shirts and shorts and then we do activities to earn merit badges all right i experienced church camp through a weekend just long enough for me to be scared out of my wits from the ghost stories and never wanted to do it again. So I'll just live vicariously through all the movies and TV shows instead. My parents sent me, I just, now that I'm thinking about it, they sent me to a, like a week long church camp. It was like in my town. And yeah, I was like, I, I, I can't. I'm too far away for 
for my log boxes? Where are my action yes. figures? <laughs> Speaking of which, so Preston, we're excited to have you here because this really is going to be a kind of a get to know you session. And of yeah. course, in that process, we want to hear about your origin story. You know, growing up, I remember liking Spider-Man and and the Incredible Hulk. You know, like the Hulk was on TV. I remember that. But as far as actual physical comic books, the biggest memory I have was in like 1987 or 88. We lived in Illinois outside of Chicago and my grandmother lived in Mississippi. And so we would make that drive to go visit her occasionally. And one time we went to visit her. And my mom, I guess, was cleaning out her garage or something. And as we were leaving to go back home, she plopped this big brown grocery sack in my lap that was full of comic books that were hers when she was a kid. Oh, wow. So I actually have my mom to thank for getting me hooked on comic books because I had that whole two-day car ride back to Chicago. And I read all her old comics that were, for the most part, like old Harvey stuff. So Richie Rich, Dot, Baby Huey some Archie stuff like that. But also in between all those, all those were a few select issues of World's Finest, That's Aquaman, cool. Superman, Action Comics, Metal Men. And so I had some really, really cool look at comics from the Silver Age to kind of get me hooked. And then I found my own there on out from like the grocery store, standing in line, picking up X-Men. Actually on my wall, I have my very first that I bought myself, which was an X-Men classic number 49. I forget what it's reprinting, but it was a 1990 issue. But to follow up to that story, when we'd go back to my grandmother's house, my mom would find more comics. And so eventually I had like over a long box full of Archie's and, and some DC stuff and random things. And that was that. We ended up actually moving to live with my grandmother when my parents separated. And so I lived in that house for eight years. I would explore the garage. My mom knew I loved comics this whole time. Fast forward to about three years ago when my grandmother passed away and my mom was selling the house and she came and gave me some more stuff. That was mine that I guess I left there. And she brought me this duffel bag of comics that I'd never seen before. And it was more of her comics that she hadn't given me. What What is this comics vault? <laughs> it was like Amazing Spider-Man number 98. It was Thor. It was Marvel stuff I'd never seen before. It was crazy. It was like, I'm glad I got it when I did because I would not have appreciated it at the time when I was nine years old. But it was amazing. The gift that keeps on giving. Go to Grandma's house. <laughs> I'd, have been, I'd have been like, Mom, why are these in a bag? Like, I'd be like, oh my God, preserve I'll have them. to send you guys a picture so you can see the bounty of treasure yeah. laid before me. That for sure great. that is an awesome story i love it but you spoke of you know the fact that when you were nine your tastes may have been a little bit different than those classic comics so we're curious to know when you started going to comic book stores or buying them off the racks who were some of your favorites what did you really get into i'm sure it's cliched but you know the first was the x-men and so stuff like that 
And really, I bought, you know, the big Marvel stuff, Fantastic Four, things like that. And then, honestly, thanks to Wizard, I really got into the independent stuff. So kicking it off with Image, which is, of course, perfect that we're talking about that tonight. And then I started getting really into the indies. I was big into, you know, Slave Labor Graphics, Johnny the Homicidal Maniac. I mean, really (laughs) weird, quirky stuff, man. Milk and Cheese. I really like those. I got into the Valiant stuff. And then, of course, being a kid of the 90s, I got I did get into like the collectability aspect of it and getting the foil covers and that kind of stuff. Bloodshot. Right. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, quintessential 90s, a little bit of everything. And how much did you hang on to all these years? Has it been constant in your life or did you let it go for a while and come back to it? Well, I'm not a hoarder. I really am not, but I do like to save things that mean a lot to me. So I actually saved most all of my comic books and then only in the recent past seven, eight years, slowly started dwindling some down that had accumulated too much over time. So yeah, I've I've got a few long boxes full of my most treasured pieces from my childhood still. Well, that is great. Yeah, I love to hear that. So earlier we were talking about going to camp and, you know, going to camp sometimes, you got to write some letters home. So why don't we open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. You know, just a bit of wizard business behind the scenes editorially. Pat McCallum tells us that he's officially taking over the duties on magic words going forward. So as we see the responses back and forth, you'll know that it's Pat who is talking to us here. And just by way of explanation, there's, the letters page is starting to get a lot bigger. That section is growing. And most of the people right now that are writing in are writing in with corrections about books being omitted or listed incorrectly in the price guide. Well, actually, wizard, one person in particular references, I had a book that was listed at 46 $6 one month and then $4 the next. Wizard's like, oh, well, sorry. The actual value is always just $4. Can you say typo? <laughs> but apparently people really were using this as their source for pricing their collections. That was never what I used Wizard for. Mine was purely education and entertainment. And the price guide was just taking up space as far as I was concerned. But how about for you guys? When you read Wizard, were you using the price guide on a regular basis? I only really used it when, you know, the Death of Superman book came out and I wanted to know if that book was going up and I kept looking after that. But other than that, really was more like, ooh, what's coming out next month or what am I going to look forward to kind of thing. I used it a lot, honestly, because back then you had what the Overstreet Guide that was only published every year. So instead of this fast paced Internet age that we had where you can know things instantly, look up eBay auctions and stuff like that. You know, if you kind of wanted a pulse on the volatility of it, you had to keep up with the monthly magazine. So I actually really did use it pretty heavily. Oh, interesting. That's okay. Cool. So I, I've, I've learned that the letters section is what rage tweeting is today. It's just like, <laughs> that's basically what it, it turns into. So this one says, Dear Wizard, I have just finished reading ish- Wizard number 10, and I can honestly say that this is the best issue to date. The trading card was a fantastic idea, but it makes me wonder if there are any free holograms on the horizon. I hope you guys could conjure up a Deadpool hologram. Anyway, under some of my questions. One, if Mark Silvestri is doing Cyberforce for Image Comics, will he be leaving Wolverine like Rob is leaving X-Force and Jim is leaving X-Men? 
Gee, I hope not. Two, did you hear of any Image Universe cards coming out? Three, are there any plans for a second X-Men card series? Maybe, then I'll see a Deadpool hologram. Four, are you guys doing a Deadpool... Are you guys going to do a Deadpool cover or what? I like Deadpool. We know. Okay, we get it, pal. (laughs) I got it. Okay, number five, and this is his last question... How about a hologram cover of Wizard? How about it? Huh? Huh? I like holograms. <laughs> I know this is a long letter, but you don't print enough letters from Canada. So please, print mine. A. Ken Cormick. To which Wizard responds, Ken, you hoser. We do plenty of things with you wacky Canadians. In fact, we spent a lot of time up here drinking beer, eating bacon, watching hockey. Now ain't that Canadian of us? As for your questions, one, yep, Mr. Silvestri is leaving Marvel for Image. Two, yes, there are plans for Image trading cards. No specific details yet, but if we catch wind of anything, we'll keep you posted. Three, considering how well the first X-Men series sold, you could bet Psylocke's underwear that they'll be a series two. But who's going to draw it? And four, we have Deadpool slated for a cover, but an artist has not been chosen yet. Five, check out the cover to the Wizard special for the coolest cover you've ever seen on sale next month sometime. So, there's some stuff packed in there. First of all, the idea that there would be a Deadpool cover for Wizard, that wouldn't happen until issue 22, and even then he's sharing the cover with Sabretooth and Apocalypse and Omega Red, so it wasn't a Deadpool solo cover. And I mean, as far as image trading cards, that was pretty much what Wizard was doing with every issue going forward now. Polybagged with an image-based trading card. And even this issue comes packed with a Shadowhawk trading card. So that was definitely wizard stock and trade. I'm sure they didn't want to give that up to anybody else when that was selling their magazines. And then the whole thing about check the wizard special, that was the Comic-Con special that we covered. Although he was asking about a hologram cover. That was not a hologram cover. I think it had some shiny elements to it, maybe, but that was just a huge gatefold cover. For those of you who remember, that was the cover that I completely botched every single character that was drawn on there, (laughs) except for one. Uh, I will say I I have enjoyed reading Pat's replies. I I think he really gets into it. And like you mentioned earlier, it's just one big gripe session for trolls. But one of his responses really, really caught my eye, which was eat some fiber and loosen up a bit. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, with that, Michael, I think it's time we jump into the Wave Riders Wayback Machine. now we're dealing with august of 1992 and there was some pretty interesting movies that came out during this time all are pretty good a wide variety of what was out there though so the first one is an academy award-winning film for best picture and if you've ever seen it and you've stayed awake through the first sitting of it bravo i do really (laughs) love this movie but it is very long and it is unforgiven from August 7th. You slept through this? Hard to believe, friend. Hard to believe. <laughs> I had to watch it in film school, and, and we, we were like, the, the room was dark. It was, we were all kind of leaning back. I, was, I just passed out the first time. I was like, oh, no. And I had to, then I had to go rent it at Blockbuster to rewatch it so I knew what I was <laughs> writing for for a paper. True story. 
Now, the second movie, also that came out on August 7th, is a fantastic movie. I love this campy movie. It is Three Ninjas. Rocky loves Emily. Rocky loves Emily. (laughs) (laughs) And this is not Three Ninjas Kickback. This is the original Three Ninjas. Not Three Ninjas Knuckle Up? (laughs) I didn't even see that one. I... I hadn't thought about Three Ninjas in so long that when I first read the notes, my brain went to Surf Ninjas, yes. which is an entirely different movie, but, but also pretty good. still enjoyable, yeah, on the same level, yeah. Three Ninjas is one of those movies where it's just like it hit at exactly the right moment, you know? Right. It's just like Ninja Turtles are everything. All right, now suburban kids are ninjas like we all want to be. I mean, the best scene of that movie is when the guys are breaking into their house and they set up all those traps for them, so it's like Home Alone Ninjas. Come on, little dudes. We don't want hurt you this was the one where, where they each had their own special like mask they wore right they had they had different masks they pulled out on their faces for the three ninjas right yeah exactly was yeah. one of them called tum tum or that yes. yeah okay was, yes colt right. tum tum and rocky yes that's right uh, wow. remember that because wasn't like their their grandfather was the one that taught them how to to fight in it Exactly. He trained them and then gets taken hostage. They gotta save him. That's right. (laughs) Now, the next movie came out on August 13th, and this is Dead Alive. And this is not related to any of, like, the Evil Dead movies. It's a totally different movie, but it is... I, I saw this movie once, and I was like, once was enough for me. It was terrifying. <laughs> I'm not good at horror. And this was... Yeah, this is a big breakthrough Peter Jackson film from his early days in gory, gory horror. I mean, it's just over the top. It's ridiculous. Just this gross is one where stuff. even if you didn't see it, you would recognize it by the just cover. having strolled the cover in your video store the of the, the mouth opening, being pulled open, and another face or something Ugh. sticking out. It's great. Literally, the moment I read the name, I was like, "Oh, I, I visualized that cover." And I yep. was like, "Oh, you can't. Ne- it, you can never forget that cover. It's just nope. always there." <laughs> now, the last movie that came out in August is Single White Female, and I really loved this movie. I still do like it. It's it's a little dated at this point, but I feel like it transcends in the sense that a lot of Instagram is feels like a lot of single white female people copying off of one another and, and become trying to become another person. It's very interesting. in in the weirdness of how it could translate to now, if they were to remake this movie. Yeah. It was just the nineties, early nineties, especially just even as the era of the thriller, right? You know, it's just like everything was a thriller, whether it was like the hand that rocks the cradle or building off of fatal attraction and all these movies, you know, so single white female was just that next evolution where you're just like, Oh yeah, this is, super creepy somebody taking over your life yeah. it wasn't something i was watching at 12 i'll say that though no not at 12 yes <laughs> but i i feel like i think i saw it when i was maybe 15 or so the first time and i was like wow this is frightening and, and interesting at the same time but it was a uh, yeah i like that movie a lot so moving on to music and there is a lot of music that came out in august of 1992 that will really bring people back so we're going to start with the Gin Blossoms with New Miserable Experience featuring a personal favorite of mine, the song Hey Jealousy, on August 4th. 
I feel like Adam has probably a Gin Blossom story. I do. Isn't that crazy? It. How did you recall that one? Who doesn't uh, have a Gin Blossom story? <laughs> well, it's it's directly related to my comics fandom, though, and that's the weird thing. So when I was like getting super into trading cards, right, spending all my money that isn't going to comics on comic book trading cards, there was this, it was actually right next door to South Coast Plaza. It was a, a card store. And so they had a fully stocked, just like, every type of Marvel Universe trading cards. And there, there were so many at the time of Marvel Masterpieces and whatever. So I remember walking around their store just trying to make my selections. It was like, I got five bucks. What can I get for five bucks? And all of a sudden this song comes on and I'm listening to it and I just, I forgot all about cards for like two and a half minutes. And I'm like, what is this song? And we can drive around this town and let the cops chase us around. And I'm like, yeah! And it just mesmerized me. And that is the soundtrack of my collecting so random but i always think of hey jealousy when i'm like sorting through cards and stuff <laughs> it's okay i kind of have that too i have i don't have hey jealousy as my song but tom cochran's life is a highway that's another good one that's another i really distinctly remember going to pick up young blood number one and that song was playing in the car radio so that one is distinctly tied to to image comics for me that's great this song is one of those songs that whenever it comes on if i'm in the car i, I still to this day i crank it up if it's on you know whatever radio i'm listening to on sirius now and i love that song so the next album is uh, a personal favorite of mine mainly because i love acoustic music and i love mtv's unplugged back in the 90s and this is eric clapton's unplugged album and this came out on august 18th and I remember this. I remember the music video they did for one of the songs. It was a fantastic album. Yeah, I just remember, because this was like the first big unplugged special that MTV did. This was one of the very first, yeah. Yeah, and I remember the commercial that would play for it all the time, like, to order the CD. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was always just like, Layla, ding, ding. I was like, ooh, this is a good riff. I like this. And I remember hearing the, the original version, you know, the electric version years later. I'm like, whoa, this is completely different, you know? Completely different. Yeah, I'm the same way. MTV's Unplugged exposed me for the first time to, to Eric Clapton. I, I didn't really know anything about him. And so I was like, oh, yeah, Layla sounds really good. And then I was like, there's a fast version? <laughs> it was, was earth-shattering. I, I was obsessed with MTV Unplugged. When, when they would play it live, I, I, I still to this day like the Nirvana album. It's probably one of my favorite albums of all time. And Kiss Unplugged is probably among their top five, in my opinion. They do a great job. <laughs> if you wouldn't believe it, but Kiss is pretty good acoustic. <laughs> I haven't heard it. If you say it's good, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> now, the next one is the Wallflowers debut album, which came out on August 25th. There was no actual hits that came off of that album. I, I didn't even know they had an album that early. That's the one fronted by Jacob Dylan, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One hit life. Oh, that's you know, that right. Was- that was the next album, but usually people's like debut album is the big one that they have the sophomore slump. But for them, it wasn't till their second album that they actually, you know, got that huge radio hit and nothing too much after that. But still, we remember it. That's a big 90s classic. What are you talking about? They were in the Godzilla soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> it's just strange, though, because like he's Bob Dylan's son. Like you think he'd be colossal like you know i love bob dylan i i love you know some wallflower songs i couldn't name 10 but you know now the next one <sighs> secretly i i love this i really do <laughs> uh I, my, my mom had this album 
and used to listen to it all the time is Bobby Brown's Bobby featuring Humping Around, which came out <laughs> on August 25th. And yes, I heard this song in my house, played by my mother, a lot. We had like a big, you know, like those JVC, like 15 shelf, like record player, CD player, dual cassette things. And she used to crank it all the time, this whole album. And I'm like, okay, great. And, and I was like, but doesn't he have songs from Ghostbusters too also? Like, can we listen to those too? Yeah, that, I mean, it was a big radio hit. It was just so funny to hear that song come on the radio, you know, and you're just like, wait, what's humping? Humping around? Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm 10 years old. I shouldn't know this. What is going on? The end of innocence, Bobby Brown. That, folks, is our Wave Riders Wayback Machine. And now I think it's time we check out our table of contents here, see what's filling up this magazine of Wizard number 12 for August 1992. So, First things first, we have a Jim Lee cover. We've already had two McFarland covers by this point. This is the first Jim Lee giving us some members of his Wildcats team. Everybody's getting super excited. He's the hottest thing ever with X-Men. Moving on to Image and Wildcats. So on the cover here, we have Zealot, we have Warblade, and we have Amp. And I gotta say, this particular cover is for the debut. You're saying, oh, I'm showing off my new characters. It's really not that interesting or dynamic. What do you guys think about it? No, you know, you don't get a whole team shot. Imp isn't that really appealing of a character right there. You know, it's Jim Lee art. You can't go wrong. He's good at what he does. It is not really pulling me in. I mean, if you had Grifter on that cover, then it would be a winner. Just Grifter alone, you know? I'm not interested, really. The characters feel like they are copycats of other types of characters, and it doesn't really draw me in too much, personally. Sorry, Jim Lee. But it's interesting because he mentions here in his interview, titled A Bowl of Granola, the title of which comes from Wizard asking Jim Lee about his favorite breakfast cereal, but he doesn't doesn't have one because a he didn't grow up eating cereal and b that stuff will kill you man <laughs> jim lee very health conscious but it's it's kind of interesting as he gets into this because he explains that the x-men were his favorite marvel characters and drawing them fulfilled his need to draw anyone else from the marvel universe you know he's like i love frank miller's daredevil but i don't really want to draw that character he says the only person left out there the only character he still needs a chance at is batman hmm I wonder how that'll turn out. Yeah. But what were some of your takeaways, Preston? Because I know you got a chance to peruse this issue as well from your collection. So uh, with the Jim Lee interview, a couple things stuck out. I got three things. One, he mentioned Deathblow as part of Darker Image. And mm-hmm. I mean, remember Deathblow, but was Darker Image a thing? Did that end up happening? Yeah. When I went to the Extreme Studios, got a little tour, they actually gave us a copy of Darker Image. And yeah, that was like their anthology book. Okay. I just missed that one. Yeah, I think everybody did. <laughs> Recently, uh, Universal attempted to do that Universal Monsters reboot, Universal Dark or whatever. What was it called? Gosh. But, you know, anyway. Dark Universe. Dark Universe. That's what it was. I was like, oh, I didn't know they did that. Second thing of note, they were talking about artists that they like and the name Joe Casada came up and he commented that Joe Casada has a nice blend of Nolan, Magnola, Arthur Adams look, a really nice look. He'll definitely go places. Ah, you think so, eh, Jim? Jim's got an eye for talent, man. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) And then lastly, I I thought this was great. 
we all look up to Jim Lee and he was obviously so talented and it seems like he, he had, you know, a glint in his eye for the future. But it said when he was asking what writers he'd like to work with, he says, I really don't know a lot of people in the industry firsthand yet. So th- he's pretty green now, man. I mean, yeah, he had that run on X-Men, but he's still really young in his career. Doesn't even have contacts in the industry. Well, speaking of which, the one name he does drop is Chris Claremont. And I'm like, you're the one who drove Chris Claremont off of X-Men. Why would he want to work with you? But also, I remember at this time that they were promoting that Chris Claremont was basically like the eighth founder of Image. Like he was kind of behind the scenes. He was going to be doing stuff with them. And, And so I always found that really odd. Yeah, there was just like, yeah, I want to work with Chris Claremont. Really? I mean, maybe he hated Bob Harris more than he hated Jim Lee. I don't know. Um, but speaking of which, you know, Lee also, he explains that the whole concept of image is about changing the business model of comics as, you know, as it relates to creator rights. But also he talks about the people that are predicting the downfall of image. He sees that they just have a resentment towards the change that they are all bringing. They're trying to hold on to the past. He calls it their own little fiefdom. <laughs> you know, people that just like, this is how we've done business. We're at the top. Don't you come challenge us. But I also thought it was funny because he really only briefly mentions Wildcats. He's not talking about his whole concept or anything, but he does say that he relates to Emp because he's a short character. <laughs> and that's why he's on this cover. I have to believe it. The Ghibli's like, Emp is me. I'm the little guy. Yeah, they didn't really mention Wildcats in the interview, which is surprising since that's the cover art. And, you know, I'll admit I bought several issues of Wildcats growing up, and I, I guess I enjoyed it because I bought, you know, a handful of them. But I was very thankful that later in this issue, they actually had a two-page spread about Wildcats that gave you a little bit of background and a roll call of the actual team members and their powers and stuff. Because I, I I hadn't thought about this team in years and even looking at the cover I was like what's that guy's name I don't remember so I'm very glad that they had the roll call do you remember all of the team member names I do just because I was super into the action figure line for Wildcats Uh, and I I thought they were so beautiful yeah Playmates put them out and so the only ones I ever bought off the shelf were I bought Hellspont who was the bad guy and I bought Maul you know who's the big guy Mm -hmm. and I actually filmed on my family camcorder a movie, you know, where they were battling each other, you know, so he goes to the future, he gets cryogenically frozen, there's all this stuff going on in that film, you know, so so I, I remembered them all from that, but yeah, I, I didn't read the comics really at all, and you know, I caught like one or two episodes of the animated series, but yeah, Wildcats, although I felt like Jim Lee had created the most distinct character designs of all the image guys that had teams at least, but at the same time, it's like, what are their personalities? What do you assign to them? You know, Grifter's mysterious that's the coolest part about him you know (laughs) don't let adam fool you he is a walking talking encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to pop culture so (laughs) he he says it's the action figures but he knows more for just because it kind of like absorbs into his brain like osmosis and just kind (laughs) of comes in i didn't even know that there was an animated series for these characters i had no idea honestly looking at this picture and i'm looking at the roll call page right now the only character that i remember is grifter because he folds into dc but like all these characters have a lot of really cool looks i'm surprised more of them didn't carry over into the dc universe once jim lee came over there because you could see that they could translate in some sort of way or or even his team could show up but it just other than grifter i think they all just kind of 
vanish and it's it's kind of weird yeah if you'd have shown me this team picture before having read this over again i would have only been able to tell you grifter's name and everybody else i would have just made up something horrible but i i had totally forgotten that spartan was even like a cyborg like he's a synthetic being i had forgotten completely that maul gets dumber the bigger he gets which i think is great (laughs) and then i forgot that voodoo has that power to change to like animals and stuff so she's like a beast boy for the group. Yeah, I never knew what her deal was. She was always just like, oh, the hot girl, she's their Psylocke, basically. But yep, I never exactly. knew what her powers were. When I look at the team photo, the main thing that jumps out to me, though, is how similar it actually is to Youngblood in a lot of ways. And Jim actually mentions here, he says, you know, when we first talked about a shared universe and sharing the image imprint, Rob had already done two teams that essentially did what the FBI and CIA did, that these heroes would be celebrities. I immediately started thinking about a concept of how I could get a team together who didn't want to be celebrities. So we knew right away that it would be a covert, a team with a hidden agenda. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, but I I think you guys just didn't coordinate very well because Spartan has like the same hair as Shaft. He's got the big red hair coming out the top, you know. Maul is basically bad rock. You know what I'm saying? Like they all seem to have analogs for the most part. Now the Hulk Captain America, yeah, they have have analogs, all right. (laughs) Credit where credit is due. These books sold a ton. Youngblood was a crazy seller. This sold really well, too. But it was almost like the reason I think they're so forgettable for for me. I mean, I I know Shaft's name, but I couldn't tell you anybody else in Youngblood either right now. I think it's kind of like, you know how boy bands have a type and they fill those types? So they have the shy one. They got, you know, (laughs) the youthful boy, high singer like Justin Timberlake. And then they got the broody, mysterious guy they were just filling like archetypes of characters it wasn't that original it was like oh let's have the mysterious one oh let's have the you know intriguing femme fatale oh let's have the the recluse and and all that kind of stuff they were just checking boxes no totally they do have a very interesting look but you know if you break it down to bare bones most of these characters look like somebody else from other franchises but i find ultimately though when you look at jim lee he's like yes okay maybe some of these were derivative it was exciting at the time but it wasn't as long lasting and yet just look at the way he's moved his way through the ranks of the comics industry to where he is in charge of dc that's pretty crazy yeah, it's amazing. And I don't have anything signed by Jim Lee, but I have a couple of covers that, that were like for Dark Knight's Metal where I have Scott Snyder's signature and I'm hoping to someday get Jim Lee's signature on the same cover because it's his cover of the all the dead Batmans or whatever. He has this, just this way about him and I follow him on Instagram. He just has a nice personality. Hot artist to, to head of it all. So that's great. Moving on here, there is an interview with Kevin Eastman. Yes, one of the co-creators of the Teenage Age Mutant Ninja Turtles, and he is talking about his new publishing company, Tundra, and his whole point in creating this publishing house was to eliminate the financial difficulties experienced by comic book creators, which he certainly understood when they're just, you know, in a living room, passing back and forth their drawings of Ninja Turtles, and then saying, ah, what if we get this sold? And they got lucky, and he's just trying to say, well, we got lucky, let's help some people out. And I thought it was so interesting that he's getting people like James O'B 
Barr, who created The Crow, helped him finish out his run on that book. They said they're going to be publishing collected editions of Alan Moore's From Hell and Lost Girls series, Michael Gilbert's Mr. Monster, and hey, a new kid on the block, Mike Allred with Madman, who is, quote, a sensitive superhero. Obviously, one of those is among my favorites, but it's interesting also because, you know, they talk about how there's a crow motion picture of the works. We obviously know how that turned out, but From Hell gets turned into a a movie as well with Johnny Depp. And even at this point, Eastman had purchased Heavy Metal magazine, which was like this edgy kind of comic art magazine. It was more of a UK publication at the time, but I remember seeing Heavy Metal on the racks back in the day and be like, whoa, what is this? Now, I had to look up Tundra because I didn't remember this company at all. Now, some of the names you read off, I remembered, but I didn't remember them as being published by a company called Tundra. It was very short-lived. It was 1990 to 1993 before it got bought out by Kitchen Sink Press, which they had been around since the 70s and done underground comics and indies and stuff like that for a while. But then they themselves went out of business in 99. So, yeah, it was kind of a, a flash in the pan. And I read in the interview that he kind of attributes it to not that he wasn't dealing with great artists or great stories. It was just they were all new. And so having to build up a brand from the scratch every single time really took a lot more resources and time and energy than he had anticipated. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he hoped that he was going to get somebody who had that next big thing like he did, you know, right. and I think it just didn't quite work out that way, unfortunately. But it's 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 very telling because if, if you look at it like this, like the comic book industry, it's so hard to get lightning in a bottle and have a DC Comics or a Marvel Comics or even Image for that matter to have that something will say oh this is going to take off because there's so many indie comic companies that have tried to like succeed and they have their little niche but they don't last nearly as long as the, these bigger companies yeah well it, it, speaking of the independent scene the next interview article here is with Jim Valentino and he had really cut his teeth doing independent books back in the day and now he's there with all the image guys getting ready to do his Shadowhawk book and he had been big because he was at Marvel doing Guardians of the Galaxy and actually he mentions that he's still working for Marvel even with the image move because he has a family to support (laughs) and that's the benefit of image is that each creator can set their own rules and they were kind of like well what did the rest of the guys think they're fine with it I mean I do what I want to do that's just the whole point of what we're setting out to create and he mentions also that the you know Again, like Jim Lee kind of mentioned, there's this criticism of image. Basically, they're saying the buzz around is these creators they're all just doing superhero books like they did at Marvel he's like yeah but we like doing superhero books and he mentions that Valiant is doing superhero books and no one's calling them out so there seemed to be some sort of double standard that he had an issue with yeah you know reading the Jim Lee interview Jim comes off like a very very nice guy very down to earth if you've read Rob Liefeld interviews he's has a little bit of arrogant nature about him but he's great reading Valentino's interview that guy is just so over it (laughs) talk about dealing with uh, people in the letter section uh, or just trolls or getting asked the same old question he was a little surly in this interview i think he's just been like man what i'm done i'm i've been asked these questions a thousand times yes i still have to work yes we're doing something new get on with it Uh, i really liked it Yeah, he's definitely got almost a chip on his shoulder. He's just like, you guys, I mean, why are you doing this? I mean, he talks about comic book readers criticizing comics pros' personal lives, making personal attacks based solely on their work. Looking Mm. at their artwork and being like, I hate this person because they draw in a style I don't appreciate. (laughs) 
his whole his whole point was basically just because you don't like someone's art style doesn't mean they are a bad person. Rob Liefeld probably has a thing or two to say about that, I would imagine. <laughs> I did like one other quote he had, which was, "Yeah, I tend to run my career very stupidly in that <laughs> in that he always starts something new, so he's having to uh, start from scratch and." His old fans don't necessarily like what his new stuff is, and so he doesn't get a whole lot of carryover every time. It's kind of a reinvention every every shebang. Right. He's been doing these team books, and now Valentino's doing Shadowhawk, which his whole point of it is it's the first comic where the identity of the hero is a mystery, and he barely even says a word. Uh, so it's just like, you don't know who he is, and that's the point of the book. You're trying to figure out who is Shadowhawk, and there's all these people sprinkled in. It could be this, could be that. But he also says the main point of Shadowhawk is he breaks criminals' spines instead of killing them, so that even if they get off in court on a technicality, they still pay the price. <laughs> I have a conspiracy theory that Jim Valentino just designed Shadowhawk and didn't really have an idea of where he was going with it or what was going on. And he's just like, ooh, he's just mysterious. You don't know what his background is. And he was figuring it out as he went. Give me some time. Give me some time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He only says one sentence in the first issue. Yeah. But yeah. So, I mean, it was pretty interesting how he did it, though. He mentions that all of the image launch titles, with the exception of Spawn, were just three to four issue mini series to introduce a concept if the people like them they buy the character we'll do more and he did that so he had shadowhawk and then he had shadowhawk 2 like it was a sequel film so it was kind of a fun way to to go about doing things now one really random feature in here it, it popped up and i was like is this a paid advertisement that looks like an article like i don't know what this is but the title was comic book character ring premiums a skyrocketing market you guys have your ring premiums on hand? You got a whole <laughs> Thanos fistful of them? Well, that's what's so strange. I mean, it's like, basically the premise is old radio show fan club rings were selling, according to this guy, for $80,000 a piece. Like, he, he was just saying, like, oh, you wouldn't believe what you could get for these things. It's the new thing. So it's just like, comics are not good enough, cards are not good enough, now find these old rings. And I have to say, though, I had a whole Tomart price guide that was dedicated to these radio show premiums from the 30s and 40s. So, I mean, there really was something for the, you know, the older adults of that time who had disposable income tried to reclaim their youth of so long ago. They were interested in those things. In fact, I joined the Shadow fan club when the 1994 The Shadow movie came out, and I got a membership club ring, so who knows if that'll be worth someday. <laughs> Well, I did a little research for you guys, and I looked at the most recently sold ring premiums on eBay, and the highest selling one was a 1940s Buck Rogers Ring of Saturn, which glows in the dark, and it sold for not $80,000. It sold for $259. Whoa. Market fell out of that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not normally a cynic, but I'm, I'm with you, Adam. I, I was looking for whether this was a paid advertisement or not. I think this guy... He is the president and CEO of Diamond Comic Distributors, and I think he's basically just hyping up rings so that they can hopefully sell, th sell some from their distributorship. Yeah, which they eventually do. Like, Wizard tries selling collectible rings of Wizard. They're, like, diamond-shaped in a, in a couple months. Like, so, yeah, I, I think that was just they were trying to build that into an industry, and it did not take. Sneaky. Also, this issue, the Brat Pack returns. If you guys recall, this was where they would get kids that were buying comics at the time, you know, 13 
13 to 15 year olds and get them into a discussion about the industry and this one in particular they're talking about how they feel that comics should be promoted or what type of ads should be in comics so the main thing they all seem to agree on is that comic books should have tv commercials apparently when gi joe was launching because it launches a comic book first they had these big commercials that were on tv telling you to to buy it and also they're mentioning how certain books got on news broadcasts and things like that so anything on tv is good for comics but then they're saying when you put ads for comics in a comic that's a waste because fans are already reading comics so you shouldn't do that because you're just promoting to the people that are already there yeah but kids are stupid what do they know <laughs> and then they're like and all kids agree that video game ads are perfect that's what you need i actually i i, I will attest to that because i got a whole big lot of just old comics that were kind of cruddy and i just took out all the vintage nintendo ads and i put them in a binder and so now now I have all those to look at, you know, so I think that really is when you think about, okay, what did I love seeing in comic books? The video game ads were a big, memorable part of it. Yeah, totally. A lot of these 90s comics, you know, when there was just such a glut of bleh in the market, you know, that don't hold their collectability any longer and you can get for 50 cents or a quarter now. They're still fun to look through because they're this this snapshot of time of pop culture, not just the story, but the ads. And I really like looking through not just the video game ads, but, you know, like I found a in some, I think it was Legends of Batman number 42, some horribly forgettable issue. There was a fold-out poster for the horror movie The Shocker. And oh, yeah. <laughs> Shocker! I was like, what a treat! That also has a kiss connection. Paul Stanley sings on the soundtrack. <laughs> But yeah, it's so interesting, though, because I was actually going through an old issue of Ghost Rider from like a year from this point, from 1993, and there's a whole thing in there about like this exclusive Ghost Rider comic you could only get at KB Toys, and there's a coupon in the book where you get five bucks off any Nintendo or Sega Genesis game that you buy at KB Toys, plus then you get the exclusive comic book as part of the deal. Wow, okay. So it's like those types of ads and those promotions, it's just like, who has has that book i tried looking it up online and there's like one available for that ghost rider <laughs> comic but also mentioned here just very briefly is the first annual halloween costume contest is being announced that they want you to start submitting your pictures now so in october for that issue they can show you that was actually one of my favorite features in wizard aside from the homemade heroes is every year when halloween would come around and you'd see the cosplay going on before that was a thing right that was the only place you saw superhero costumes that would always blow me away and this Lobo one's pretty good, actually. Yeah, it's solid. The, uh, you know, this is kind of before, like, I know that people always dressed up at comic conventions, but this is before cosplay was really, really a thing. And so, you know, they were more homemade and had a little bit of grit and grime to them. And I, I appreciated that looking back at those and the ones that really pulled it off. You're like, wow, that is really, really impressive because we didn't have all that technology that we do now. For sure, yeah. And, and the best part of that, and we'll get to that when, when that comes up, but Wizard was merciless at making fun of these people in their dumpy costumes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. And Michael, I apologize, there's no hunkin' babe of the month in this issue, so I don't know what you're going to do on the Wizard Half episode with your sexy voice. Um, I'm terribly disappointed. I'll have to figure out some way to throw that in there. I'll, I'll, I'll shoehorn it in there somewhere. I'll, I'll figure it out. <laughs> The other fun announcement in here is on the back of the poster, they are promoting the Wizard Cool.
cool core. Oh yes, join the core, you know? So this was actually a really neat thing because they're trying to get like, you know, their fan club off the ground essentially. And the core stands for Comic Oriented Relentless Pursuit Squad. <laughs> well, they were really reaching with that one, but yeah. the, the things that you get from this, you qualify for discounts on Wizard and other merchandise, receive priority at special events, carry a membership card, direct line news updates, participate in special Wizard polls, questionnaires, and feedback sessions, and are tipped off to cool stuff before it happens. It doesn't sound like there's a whole lot going on here. I hope there's some weirdo out there that still has that membership card for the Cool Core. That would be so awesome awesome to see in their wallet yeah never took it out <laughs> i mean but yeah but this that really this just seems like it's totally like we want to get your information all the time we want to be talking to you about what you buy and we'll just assimilate that data because they're not giving you Instagram anything ad campaigns in analog form <laughs> but the weird part of this process is it says cool core memberships are available only at these official cool core headquarters and so like there's just a list of a couple comic book stores around the country and only if you were in that area could you actually sign up and be a part of the cool core and one of them is comics unlimited which is where i used to buy my comics and i i never saw the advertisement for the wizard cool core there oh you missed it that was an option i know but also michael speaking of the half episodes here moondogs incorporated in scumberg illinois oh no sorry schomburg illinois right hey what do you know listen it was (laughs) michael calls schomburg scumberg great listen i go off the cuff I just let it fly. <laughs> Preston, you're from Illinois, yes? So have yes. you been to Schaumburg? Is it scummy? It's not the scummiest. It's all right. It's fine. <laughs> not the scummiest. All right. Now, next up here, uh, we're not going to do a full Azrael's action figure fury, but in the toying around section, Brian Cunningham, head of action figures and toys, gets into a little bit of hot water here. There is a female reader who writes in to basically chew him out, because if you'll recall a couple issues back, we were talking all about our favorite female action figures, right? And he mentioned that back in the day when he was a little kid the only thing he used his figures for that were girls was to get a kiss from the hero and then get killed in some horrible way and so this woman writes in and she's just like look you know you are making joking comments about this but it's it's dangerous and it's promoting violence against women and he's like oh wow you know he's like i didn't realize the impact that printed words can have now that i'm a journalist but i i guess i'll be more careful in the future i was like Wow, that got pretty serious. But glad that he took it, right? He's like Michael. He'll take all comers. He'll take all criticism. He'll roll with it. Good man. Good man. I'll tell you, though, there's a lot of things you read in in these issues. And looking on it now with 2020 eyes, you're like, you can't say these kind of things anymore. (laughs) Like, it just, it would not fly. This is crazy. Exactly. Also, in the Wizard's Crystal Ball section, it has a brief mention about the Spirits of Vengeance comic book coming out. They're launching this big universe, the Midnight sons it's just like every supernatural ghost writer related book and they're trying to tie everything in there and what they're saying here in wizard is that it might be a misstep 
to release a second Ghost Rider book because according to them, the Ghost Rider books were already dipping in popularity, so there was no demand for a second title. So I guess that's something that we will watch and we'll see how that develops because I know that they go all in and like that Ghost Rider issue I was telling you I was reading, a little preview for the future, but I mean, they had like a full five or six page insert all about the launch of the Midnight Suns imprint and what it was going to mean for Marvel. And yeah, so we'll, we'll get to that when the time comes. But speaking of, you know, Marvel was top dog for a long time in the top 10 hottest comics list, but now it's all about Valiant at the one and two spot. You got Harbinger number one and Magnus number zero, which was a mail away book. You were talking about Valiant earlier, Preston. What were some of your favorite titles? Uh, my favorite Valiant title was actually one of their less popular titles, and that's Hardcore. And so it was about these enhanced or guys with psionic powers who were like an agency force. So it seemed kind of realistic, like it was grounded in reality more than like a superhero book. It was almost like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. almost in, in that regard. I liked that a lot. I really liked Harbinger, too. I mean, that was a really good story. And, and the fact that one of the main characters died in issue seven, it was like, whoa. Spoiler, dude. I know. Michael didn't get that far yet. <laughs> I didn't say who. I just said it's one. I'm only in issue five. <laughs> well, what's interesting, too, you mentioned hardcore, you know, speaking of the, the wizard cool core, but uh, Jim Lee actually drew the cover of hardcore number one. I really liked him. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of got caught up in the hype of them, but I appreciate Wizard for exposing them to me in the first place because I wouldn't have known to look for any Valiant books. Granted, a lot of them were just inflated because they were the talk of the town at the time and they have since, of course, bottomed out in any sort of value or anything. But, you know, for interesting stories, some of them were pretty good. Exo Man of War. Yeah. Archer versus Armstrong. <laughs> Uh, you know, I could go on. Yeah, it's interesting because with the rise of Valiant and obviously Image, DC was getting hit really hard. And so if you look at their Market Watch section, they have always had a pie chart. You know, so they were basically showing everybody, okay, this is who has the biggest market share. And it's always been Marvel in terms of sales. But like at this point, Marvel is at 43.9% and DC is at 25%. But the thing is that they're mentioning that DC is slowly but surely slipping lower and lower in the charts. And when we said several issues ago that DC is in danger of slipping off its number two position of most powerful publisher, a lot of people scoffed. Now it's no longer a prediction. With Image Press steamrolling its way to the top, DC can easily be pushed to the number three spot. Even there, companies like Valiant and Dark Horse are hungry to climb higher in the charts. How is this happening? DCs spend more time making their characters real and paying attention to continuity but they seem to neglect what the fans are pleading for. So they don't have the exact answer. What is it the fans are pleading for? However, DC is just not getting it done. So it took them a little while and we've talked about it. I think uh, when a certain super-ish man dies and uh, people start paying attention again. He dies? Spoiler! (laughs) Speaking of the other powerhouse of the DC universe, Michael, it's time for... Heroes in Motion. And in this issue, they're going to be talking about everyone's arguably 
favorite animated series of all time, which would be Batman the Animated Series. And so they're talking a little bit about it, giving you a preview. And Andy Mangles, in his Hollywood Heroes column, reports that Batman the Animated Series is set to premiere on Fox in the fall of 1992 on September 7th in the wake of the hype of Batman Returns. The pilot episode, On Leather Wings, featuring Man Bat, has been showing at comic conventions throughout the year. 65 episodes were ordered by Fox, which I didn't realize it was that many to start. That's pretty wild. In the article, Andy Mangles is basically listing all the characters scheduled to appear in the series. Interestingly enough, Tim Curry is listed as the voice of the Joker, and it is mentioned that he was up for the role in the film in 1989 as well, which I find very odd and interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that either. It mentions that when Bruce is visiting Europe or other places, Alfred is sometimes forced to don the Batman costume and give the illusion that the Cape Crusader is still around. This happened once in Batman 66. I think he drives the Batmobile around a couple times, but I don't think he ever actually wears the, the cowl that I can think of. Yeah, I remember the 66 episode, because yeah, he's up on top of a roof very far away. <laughs> They're making jokes about how Batman looks skinny or something like that. you know. But, like, but yeah, I don't remember Alfred ever doing that in the animated series. So it was interesting that they had that plan, but they didn't go with it. When the bad guys it, spot him, they're like, wow, he moves a lot slower than I thought. <laughs> The other thing I remember from the 66 from the movie is there's a part where Alfred is wearing a domino mask with Robin when they're following Bruce Wayne around when he's on the date with Miss Kitka. That's oh, yes. That's the only other time that I can remember that Alfred ever like went out in the field with a mask on of any sort. Yeah. So it also says that Batgirl is listed, but she didn't appear in the first season at all. There was no voice actor named for it. Uh, it's also listed that Maggie Page described as an Angela Lansbury type uh, that has been a romantic relationship with Alfred, but this character is also not ringing a bell unless they're trying to say that it was uh, Dr. Leslie Tompkins. I don't know if, if they're supposed to be saying that, that because there's been times in the comics where Leslie and Alfred were kind of like a thing at one point or another. I'm not sure if they're trying to allude to that. It just sounds like they had so many plans that they didn't follow through with or nobody remembers those episodes. But yeah, if anybody out there is a super duper fan of the animated series and all these things did happen please let us know because i'd love to check out those episodes they would be very cool but i i don't remember this maggie page ever showing up never i i mean i've watched every episode at least a couple times and i rewatched it when my eldest daughter was born and we kind of like sat down and watched it while she was like you know three or four months old and i was home on uh, paternity leave and the only major episodes that alfred was really featured was when he goes to that day spa and he gets like hypnotized and it's mm -hmm. run by poison ivy that was one of his biggest episodes for just alfred and there's a few others but he's not really ever shown a love interest of any sort throughout but again wizard is also i've noticed they've said things that were going to happen in certain movies or tv shows we we ultimately know years later that that never really manifested it's almost like i wonder if they're like stirring the pot or they're just feeding into too many rumors at the time before things actually come into fruition which is i find interesting uh finally mangles lists that many of the batman gadgets like the batarangs the bat glider the bat rope to be used in the series as well as the bat phone as seen in Batman 66, but there was never a bat phone. 
In fact, I did Commissioner Gordon use the bat signal in the early seasons? It always felt like Batman just kind of found his own trouble. You know, like he wasn't waiting for Commissioner Gordon to say, we need your help. And they had like a relationship of sorts, but it was always like Batman coming on his own terms. It, it never seemed to have to do with like Commissioner Gordon saying, we need you, Batman, save the day. That wasn't how they rolled in the animated series. There was one or two episodes that I recall that Harvey Bullock turned on the bat signal because Commissioner Gordon was kidnapped by somebody and he alerted Batman to it. And this was probably in the second season, I think. Most of the first season, you, there's just Batman by himself. It wasn't until later in the first and, and into the second where you see Dick Grayson as Robin a lot more frequently. And I remember it was an episode where Dick Grayson was Robin in the episode and in the Tim Drake costume. Let's just put it out there, but besides the point. But yeah, so I, I don't remember Gordon using the bat signal a lot. Do you guys have any favorite memories from this series? I don't have a particular one. It was all just a blur, that Fox Kids block of X-Men and Batman the Animated Series. But I just remember being so mesmerized by the art style. It was so different than anything on TV at the time. It was cartoony and was cinematic. And that just wasn't anything that we were used to yet. Yeah, I remember specifically the Cat and the Claw two-part episode, because I believe because of Catwoman's involvement and because Batman Returns had just come out, that that was actually a primetime episode that they did like uh, over two nights. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of like a big television event, because I remember recording that uh, you know, on our VCR. So that was a big deal. For some reason, the, the episode that always really jumped out at me is the Mad Hatter episode. I really like that. You know, Kimmy Robertson is playing his love interest. She's got just that great voice. Because, you know, the Mr. Freeze episode obviously was the one that won the Emmy and was all critically acclaimed. But I felt like the Mad Hatter had just as much pathos, you know, if you will. He, he had a lot going on there. Also, as I was re-watching my first season set this last week, I noticed the Scarecrow shows up like three times in the first season. It's like the Joker and the Scarecrow just over and over again. And plus the Scarecrow Scarecrow gets a redesign halfway through the season, so it was really strange. He gets a few redesigns over time. So, for me, honestly, I, I have two things. I always felt that when they did the redesign later on, it became like the new adventures of Batman, and they changed, in particular, Catwoman's look. I was so bummed out because I loved the gray costume for Catwoman, and I thought it was just so like iconic and, and beautiful. And I really wished that they had done more episodes with her and him and kind of like flushed out their relationship further. But honestly, I think personally the greatest the two-part episodes of animated series altogether is the origin of Harvey Dent into into Two-Face. Like the, just the ending of the first episode when the lightning strikes and you see his face deformed and everything. It's just so iconic. And it, it, I remember seeing it on posters and all kinds of stuff. It was just a beautiful image and it was just really well told story. Yeah, I mean, it was cool that he was an anti-hero, right? Because technically he was, you know, getting revenge on a mob boss you know what i'm saying so it wasn't like he became a criminal immediately mm. plus he was bruce's friend and so yeah you had so much going on in there i always felt the same way because they, they did a lot of two-part episodes in that first season but the Clayface episodes were great too i feel oh. like you talk to a lot of people and they're like oh yeah Clayface was the best that, that that Clayface origin story was so tragic, and like I, I remember, like you see them pouring the stuff on him, and he's it's in the shadows almost. It was just mm -hmm. like 
very beautiful. And the funny thing about the animated series, which I always found very interesting, because I, I also rewatched the Spider-Man animated series, and the Spider-Man animated series, the seasons kind of had an overarching story and interconnected each episode in one way or another. Where, in particular, with Batman the animated series for the first two seasons, nothing really connects from episode to episode. They're just different mini stories, yeah, that, with no overarching thing toward the end, which I've, I've always found kind of a missed opportunity for the show that I would have liked to have seen how they interconnected as, as later on, but they didn't. Oh, really? See, I yeah. prefer that. I, I think that is definitely the way to go, because again, you get a, a beginning, a middle, and an end to a story, and you give you two episodes, maybe, but overall, I just feel like I didn't want like this sprawling continuity, you know, like they had to do on the X-Men previously, on X-Men, and you're just like, ah, oh, okay, catch me up, catch me up. I mean, I was like, I, I liked that it was just a one and done, and they were just like really well-crafted within the 24 minutes or however long they had to tell the story. I get it. No, I, I but but you can do that though. You can tell a mini story or you know one episode, two episode story. But if something would have tied things together, like I remember when they first premiered Batgirl, and like wasn't that the end of the first season or the? Yeah, because I think the first season technically kind of had two parts to yeah, it. Yeah, it, it had two parts, and like I was really hoping that at the end of that season it would lead into something more for Batgirl for the next season. But you see her again only a handful of times until they reformatted the show for the new adventures. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll be coming back around to Batman the Animated Series because, yeah, this is a a big, big deal. But right now, speaking of being a big deal, we're going to open up Rob and Todd's Hype Machine. So, in the Jim Lee interview, he mentions that, quote, People used to think you can't sell that many comics working for an independent company. Youngblood, after its second printing, will break a million. Todd's already broken a million after pre-orders. Rob and Todd, they are at the top right now. You know, Youngblood and Spawn, and now Wildcats is coming up on their heels, but they had done it. Like, they established themselves just like they did before. That's I mean, is that how it always worked, you know? It was Todd, then it was Rob, then it was Jim you know so they're kind of always back and forth with each other but market watch that section echoes this by reporting that youngblood number one and spawn number one have shattered all sales records for independent comic books but there is a concern that Youngblood is going to be collected and sold at Walmart, and they think <gasps> that it's going to decrease the value. <laughs> That's what's going to decrease the value. <laughs> There's also a pretty funny, what I call a space filler blurb in the Wizard News section. They just had a, a square they needed to fill in that says, Creator-owned company gets fan approval! And they're basically just saying, people like image. Uh, like, <laughs> it's pretty obvious at this point that everybody is on board the image trade it seems um, and speaking of which spawn is the first image character to enter the wizards top 10 hottest heroes and villains list so it's been all marvel and x-men characters and stuff up to this point spawn is there breaking the trend rob liefeld has youngblood trading cards that are going to have prism chase cards coming out todd mcfarlane already had his set so i mean it's back and forth back and forth rob and todd rob and todd they're doing it uh, but even with all that this issue tally rob gets six mentions Todd has seven so it brings our running total Rob is at 76 Todd is at 74 he is knocking on the door look out Rob he might catch ya <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping for the day that I hear 
Zero mentions for both. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We're going to have to rename the segment. We will find out where it goes from here. All right, but Michael, why don't you take us into... The Punisher's Price Guide. Wizard Comic Watch suggests that Amazing Spider-Man number 101, which featured the first appearance of Morbius, the living vampire, will be going up in value since Dr. Michael Morbius is getting his own solo title this month. In August of 1992, it was already valued at $48, with the follow-up appearance in issue number 102 valued at almost equally as high of $40. Interesting. Now, with Sony's uh, Morbius movie starring Jared Leto on the horizon, the question becomes, has this book gone up in value to become a Firestar, stayed about the same to say a Firestorm, or gone down and become a burnout status? The survey says an ungraded copy has been selling on eBay for between 200 and $400, while a graded copy goes for around 400 to $700. Interestingly enough, there is a second print edition that sells loose for around $25 to $40, depending on the condition. The first appearance of Morbius is definitely a fire star. Yeah. It always begs the question to me, though, at a certain point, if a comic is just, you know, 50 years old, does it just instantly have value built into it? Like, as far as being like a main title on a, you know, a big character. So it's just like a random issue of Spider-Man, but it's issue number 29. It's like, that's just automatically going to be worth a lot of money. It doesn't matter who the guest villain of the month was. But at the same time, too, like this one, I didn't know that they were doing second prints that far back. I mean, was Morbius that big a deal? Did his first appearance like sell out? And then so they had to do a second printing? Apparently so. I don't so. know when that book actually second printed. Like, it doesn't say it was released in the same year or something. That could have been a more modern thing. Yeah, that's a good point. Number 101, what year was that? Um, yeah, I didn't look that up, but I mean, I, I'm guessing it's like early 70s, because if you look at the cover, Spider-Man actually has his six arms. So it, it was during that time frame, because I believe Morbius was the one who was supposed to be helping him figure out the serum right. that was going to cure him. So What was going on in that time period in the 70s? Was there a vampire thing? back then oh yeah dude monster books were huge in the 70s oh yeah that's one of my favorite things i collect nowadays so um i don't actually buy many new comics and i don't buy a whole lot of old comics either but the things that i do love to get is purely for the cover art and that is bronze age marvel monster books like Mm. creatures on the loose werewolf by night that type of stuff so it was huge back then yeah, and I, I have a handful of those. All right, now this is interesting. So it says 1971 is when this book came out. So it sounds like that was the, the moment that it arrived. But yeah, I don't see the second print listed here except as a facsimile edition. Uh, I see it. 
here we go. First hit on Google for Morbius first appearance, second print is Amazing Spider-Man number one oh one, second printing nineteen ninety two. Wow, hey, oh, so there it was. So they literally were putting it out right as this book was going to print. Probably as Morbius <laughs> was getting his own series. Here's his first appearance, guys. Check it out. Very interesting. All right. Well, speaking of getting the money out of your pocket and getting you to buy more books, it's time for Guy Gardner's gimmicks a go go. How bizarre. All right, so there's a lot going on this month. I mean, we mentioned Morbius number one coming out. It's going to be shipping polybagged with a fold-out poster. But also on the DC side, they're trying something new. We talked about Eclipso a little while back, where they're going to, we're going to glue a little plastic jewel to the cover. That was not a good idea. Instead, what they're doing with their new book, Team Titans, not New Titans, or the new Teen Titans, this is Team Titans, number one, will ship with five different covers. But... As an added bonus, each book does contain a unique backup origin story for a member of the team, which I think that's a great way to do it. To me, that's a nice gimmick, because there's at least added value. You get something else in that situation. Michael, have you ever read Team Titans? Did not know it existed. You're a DC guy. I wasn't really into Teen Titans back then. That was one of the few DC books that I used to pick up, like, as far as back issues. Interesting. I didn't know that. I was never a Teen Titans fan until the Teen Titans show on Cartoon Network, and then I started picking up books after that. I only recognize Team Titans from my time digging through quarter and 50 cent back issue bins. Yes. <laughs> you will find plenty of these covers, all five of them. Yes, get a good deal. But also coming up here, August was declared Image Month, wherein all books shipped in August will have coupons inserted, and when all seven of the coupons are sent in together, the reader earns a copy of Image Number Zero. And speaking of quarter bins, I managed to pick up some of the book that were released this month last year when I was sifting through some bins and so I have several of these certificates. I don't know if they will honor them now. <laughs> I, I would love to send them in and be like, Robert Kirkman send me a copy of Image Number Zero. So that, I just think that that's a kind of an interesting gimmick as well. It's like, buy everything and we'll give you something special. There's actually a lot of that in the early days of Image. They had so many like turn this in and you get this, join this fan club, this so on and so forth. But we, we talked about Morbius, we talked about Spider-Man, and they are saying that Spider-Man number 26 as a part of the big 30th anniversary celebration that's been going on the last few months with the hologram covers, it's going to have a hologram on the cover in keeping with all the others that have already come out. But in the Magic Words section, there is a very interesting letter where someone writes in asking, Dear Wizard, I have a copy of Spectacular Spider-Man number 189 without a hologram. It has a white space in the middle instead. This was the only copy like this in the dealer's shipment. Over the next two days, I called area comic stores and dealers and found out that no other copies were known to be missing holograms. The general idea I'm getting is that this could be a collectible production flaw that slipped past Marvel's fingers at the printing press. If so, how would this be valued, and should it be kept short or long-term? Joe Koch from San Antonio, Texas. Your copy of Spectacular Spidey is pretty special, though a definitive price would be pretty hard to nail down. A safe estimate would be 10 to $15. What you might want to do is hit a couple of comic stores and shows and see what dealers are willing to pay for it. As for keeping it in your collection or not, that's up to you. 
We take no responsibility. If you get rid of it, then it's worth a thousand dollars twenty years <laughs> from now. But speaking of which, so I went and looked it up because I was like, does this exist somewhere? Is there a production flaw, just white space copy of this book? And there was not. I, I did not find any that had been sold recently or anything. So it sounds like it was not a common production error. So who knows what this guy ended up getting for it? I did find a copy of Amazing Spider-Man number three sixty-five where the hologram was printed off. Center, and that was being sold for $999.99 plus $10 shipping. So if you have that one with the white space, it might be worth some bucks. But I'm curious for you guys, have you guys ever come across an error cover or bought one, found out it was an error? Do you have one in your collection that you can recall? No, I never came across an error cover, but I have had a, several books that were like printed slightly askew, you know? And it's kind of a bummer to find out middle of the middle of the way through that your part of your image has been clipped off because it just was wrong. And I think that's ultimately, I think that's kind of what this issue is. I bet it's just a printing production issue. I doubt it will be actually worth anything. You know, it's not like it's the, uh, the Billy Ripken baseball card with the swear word on the bottom or something where they just <laughs> something missed the sensors that they have to pull back later. It is just some mess up at the printing press. So I don't have any, misprint comics that i know of but i can tell you of a misprint collectible that i have so for a long time i was collecting funko pops and i've since started to sell off a lot of them but my very first one that i got as a gift from my wife was the first run of batman and then my buddies got me the exact same one so here's the interesting thing on the box it has batman in a gray costume with a black chest emblem one of mine has the proper chest emblem. The other one has a yellow and black bat symbol chest plate, and it is a misprint. And I found out of those Funko Pops of the first run, there's like 200 of them that have this misprint. And so it's it's worth a couple hundred dollars. Nice. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I got it as a gift. My friends bought for eight bucks at like a card store or something like that <laughs> that is sweet yeah that's a great gift the closest i have is i remember back in the day you know i was really into the what if book so i bought a bunch out of the back issue bins and i got what if number seven which was what if someone else besides spider-man had been bitten by the radioactive spider and so when i took it out of the bag and board it like the cover came off and i was like oh no but it wasn't because the cover came loose from the staples there was a second cover wrapped on top of the oh, stapled cool. cover. Yeah, so it was like a double cover, and I looked on eBay, and that's something that happens. Uh, but I, I looked at a few more, and, and the one that jumped out at me was that there was somebody had, you're bidding on a Spider-Man 2099, Volume 1, Number 1, Manufacturing Error, and it's graded at a 9.8. But what they're saying about it, it was manufactured with the interior bound upside down and backwards. Wow. So <laughs> Someone was drinking on the job that day. Yeah. <laughs> But we'd be curious to hear from you guys out there listening. What are some of your error comics or some of the, the weird production snafus you have caught in there? Because I'm sure there's some weird stuff in your long boxes. But speaking of weird, Michael, what's up next? Robin's Reading Rainbow.
Wizard Comics has on the watch list Terror Inc. number one. So we decided to explore this forgotten horror action title from Marvel, written by D.G. Chickchester. Sure, probably wrong, but okay. <laughs> leave it in, leave it in. I'm going to leave it in. Don't edit, just let it fly. Who had previously written Daredevil, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Not the Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. that was starring the Hoff, but, you know, the comic <laughs> instead. And was currently writing... The Night Stalkers book for Marvel as well. Art by Jorge Zafino, who had drawn a lot of Punisher stories in the late 80s. Okay, so let's put it this way. I never was into horror comics other than The Walking Dead for a little while. I really was reluctant to buy this on Comixology. Fortunately, a friend <laughs> of mine had like a, a PDF version that he sent to me. Yeah, this is not my cup of tea. Like, I mean, the 1982 version is is pretty nice. Like, the art is interesting. The the cover I did not like at all. The story I I kind of trailed off halfway through and wasn't really digging it. I don't know about you guys though. This is my goal with this podcast, Michael. I want to get you out of your comfort zone. You're gonna read some weird stuff. You know, Exo Man of War. We're gonna do Terror. <laughs> Well, Preston, what were your thoughts as you dug into this? Had you even heard of this book before? I had never heard of this book before. When I finally bought the issue number one from 92 on Comixology, I vaguely recalled the cover, like just barely a glint of it. But after reading it, I'm glad we're, we're I'm glad I got to read it because I was a little bummed that we weren't talking about Palmer's picks in this ep- in this issue, which were about the EC Tales from the Crypt comics you know the horror comics that were kind of seeing a resurgence in the early 90s and the reprints and stuff because i actually love those and so this is kind of up that alley where they were maybe recognizing that horror was kind of making a comeback with tales from the crypt and they're going for something a little more macabre and dark and and gritty but i i definitely agree with michael that i was kind of getting lost halfway through in this first issue i think i think they were trying to pack too much in as 100 as far as story goes they need to space this further apart i i got a little lost between like who the playboy guy was what was he the struggling some artist? sort of writer yeah, yeah, yeah. And he writes about the the macabre and whatever and he's like a, a media celebrity but he's not who we're talking about in this book like the, our main character is this guy called terror yes so, so you're right and i i'm with you guys too that halfway through the book you're like i don't know what am i reading now because it yeah. starts off so strong and uh-huh. that you see this guy who's kind of a ghoul in you know he's got his hat on he's got his trench coat of course and he has the ability this is what i love about this book in concept is he could take somebody else's body part and attach it to his body and not only can he now use that body part but he absorbs the abilities and some memories of the individual from whom he has borrowed it yeah and that is just such a cool power set yeah when i first saw that in the book i was like okay he can get body parts that's really cool power that's that's an awesome um idea and then the fact that those limbs and pieces would actually retain like memories or even special skills was like, oh, this is really cool. 
So I'm sad to see it didn't it wasn't more successful, but I can kind of see why it wasn't. Yeah, well, I mean, in the art, I have to say, I mean, I, of course they're going for kind of that gritty, you know, horrific look, but it's not super precise art, you know, it's it's kind of more sketchy style yeah. to it. Uh, but yeah, but then ultimately it gets into this whole side story about this guy, who I guess is Damon Hellstrom's, like, stepbrother. And so, oh, there's I, a whole I think lineage they're... that was like, it was almost like that scene in Spaceballs, like your cousin's brother's roommate's best friend. What does that make me? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. And like you said, they pack too much in there and i have uh later issues of the series as well because i picked up a bunch again in the discount bins i mean eventually they bring wolverine into the book for a couple issues of course that makes sense wolverine's hacking off body parts so that he can put them back on you know so i think they tried to catch us up to where we wanted to go initially but yeah it's just it's really even just the way that they wrote it after the first 10 pages is so convoluted and so like just like the dark mysticism and you're just like i can't connect to this at all even though he's essentially like a bounty hunter or whatever and they send him out on missions and he also has some other guy who's a nemesis named roger barbados and he's trying to kill him but he's apparently immortal and so there's like a lot of stuff it's like okay i guess this will be explained later but yeah so the the building blocks are there and it's all right but it then you lose yourself you're saying i don't think i'm gonna be picking up issue two but in 2007 marvel under the marvel max line which featured flicit content tags and they brought back terror inc in a reboot for an r-rated comic book line featuring cursing and excessive violence written by david lefum who has done art for harbinger for valiant and wrote later issues he worked on detective comics for dc wrote some daredevil and punisher stories at marvel and created Stray Bullets at Image. And art by Pat Zercher, who was also uh, working at DC on uh, Detective Comics, on Nightwing and Birds of Prey, and penciled for X-Men 2 movie adaptation and other filler issues for Avengers, Black Panther, Captain America at Marvel. And so, fortunately, I didn't have to buy this because a friend of mine had PDFs of it. So he sent it to me <laughs> and I, I, I perused it. And again, it starts off strong. Like the first page, like the splash page kind of thing. And it was really pretty. But again, I, I just, I can see why it was only a five issue run for this particular book. Because it was, and I remember when it came out too, because I was picking up comics back then. And the people were like, oh, it's going to come back. I'm like, I don't even know what this is in the first place. And I didn't read it then. And, and and I'm, I feel like I didn't miss much now, but it, it again, it started off strong. The issue looked nice in the beginning, and then it kind of, you know, bored me after a while. I'll say about this, for me, I feel like this reboot is a much stronger version, just in the storytelling aspect, because it starts off with his origin story, so it goes back to, like, Roman times. It's, it's got this, like, sword and sorcery element, and, and so you're seeing, like, he's like this ancient warrior, and, you know, he got cursed, and then now... Again, you know, he could assimilate all these body parts, but he doesn't die. And, and so you understand who he is, but you also understand that he had this woman warrior that he was in love with. And when she died on the battlefield, he took her arm and attached it, and then he had it encased in metal to preserve it so he could always have her near him. Like, it already just gives you so much to work with and feel for this guy. And then it, it, it's the present day, and you see he's just using the story to hit on a woman in a... <laughs> <laughs> that he's working with, 
know, and, he, and he's just like this skull-faced dude who's a mercenary. But I, I just feel like this could be a Netflix series. You know, this could be a movie if if Marvel decides to start, you know, getting into the darker R-rated universe of things because he's got a real attitude to him. You know, it's again, he's kind of over it. He's been alive for so many years, you know, and yet he's he's still using his powers. This one is much more creative, and this is a series where I've wanted to get. They did this as a five-issue limited series, then they did another follow-up, and I, I want to read it all. I really like this one much more than the, the, the first one. I don't need to be spoon-fed. I can start in the middle of a story sometimes, but I did appreciate after reading the first one to be able to have this background, this kind of mythos behind it. I will say I agree with you in that this definitely has some footings to be like a, a Netflix series or something. But in the comic, I'm pointing out two issues here. First off, he's got this lady who is a gorgeous warrior beauty who they apparently fall in love. And like that is not even a panel. <laughs> like the story of that is not even a pan. You're like, yeah. he is literally rotting and you're having a, a relationship with this guy. Okay. I need to know more about that. Cause that seems very unbelievable in this rather <laughs> unbelievable book. And then later when they're in the present, like you said, he's got this head that's just completely a rotted corpse. And he's like meeting a guy for lunch at a restaurant on a patio. And there's all those <laughs> diners around him. And like, like it's who is no big deal. Like, yeah. There's a living mummy right there. What is going on? Like, that's just normal. <laughs> okay. He lives in a world without rules. Yeah. Nobody cares. They can't handle it. But yeah, I mean, and there's some pretty cool stuff where how does he infiltrate this bad guy, Cabal, that he's supposed to go in and rescue somebody? Well, he just gets one of the henchmen, cuts off his head, and puts it on himself. You know, <laughs> kind of a, a different vein of the Mission Impossible masks right so you just take the whole head i mean so you know i'm, I'm not gonna get too nitty-gritty into this but it's, <laughs> they, they should really establish like if you can remove his head and put somebody else's head on it someone else's br- <laughs> like t- that's where i like it as, where's as, the brain power go right as a yeah. conceptual idea like it looks cool but i was like that's where i lost it i'm like what he can pull his own head off and then his brain like you know he's not like the headless horseman where he's got to keep his skull head with him to like steer the body like that doesn't make any sense like yeah i agree with you in the first one uh there was a slight difference in that well in just this issue anyway he was piecemealing it together so he would grab like an eye and an ear or a nose i could see that but like the whole head what that that took me out of it i was like all right i'm done well now here's the thing so the the climax of this is he gets outnumbered and they you know all the bad guys come in with their rifles and they just blow him to bits and so the face that he had basically becomes a skull face again so i think his essence is always there regardless of what head or other body parts he puts in the eventually rot because it's dead flesh so he always just ends up with a skull face again he must smell like he's going to pick up that girl at a bar <laughs> and like why do you smell like a dead body oh my skin's just rotting away over time pal you know it's all good don't worry I about mean, the it. best part is though is at the end they have next issue and they show you the cover and he's got like a bear or a werewolf, werewolf arm. arm yeah i saw that and that reminds me of scud the disposable assassin i don't know if you guys have ever read that book but at a certain <laughs> point scud does the same thing where he gets a human arm attached to him even though he's a robot and it turns out it's a werewolf arm <laughs> and so when the moon comes out all of a sudden he's got this werewolf arm he can't control so that makes me want to pick up issue two i'm like huh where are they going with this one of the best i love scud 
Yeah, this one, though, I will say, as weird as it was, as many nitpicky things I thought about it, it was a fun book. Uh, it told a great story, and it actually had me wondering what happens in the next issue at the end of this one, unlike the first one. Hey, some things in the 90s can be brought back and improved upon, so there we go, Terror Inc. And so, with that, man, what a discussion we've had tonight. Preston, it was so fun having you with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, Loved it. Thanks, guys. And uh, if people want to follow you on social media, where can they find you uh, i'm at squared stiff and you can listen to my podcast at wayback underscore attack awesome and we invite you all to keep finding us on social media at wizards comics on twitter and wizards underscore comics on instagram where the conversation continues between episodes also want to announce it's big news that's right we have t-shirts yep you can go to our t public store just search wizards the podcast guide to comics we've got three different designs two different wizards logos we've got our show art on a shirt so if you want to be awesome go ahead and grab yourself a shirt take a picture of yourself wearing it we might just send you a special prize for participating in the wizards universe so i ordered mine and i didn't order the one with our faces on it because i didn't want to have my face on my face on you know like it was like <laughs> it would have been, been too like meta and i was like i gotta get the logo instead <laughs> And I know we have a lot of artists out there listening. There's, uh, you know, I'm talking to you, Lee. I know you're listening. Talking to you, Eric. So, guys, if you want to design a Wizards t-shirt, we'll throw it up on the store. We'll share the wealth. We don't mind. We just want to expand our line of fashion, you know? <laughs> the X-Men and Spider-Man and everybody else did it back in the day. We could do it, too. And also be on the lookout for our mini-episodes, our Wizards Half, where Michael continues to bring you some run-and-gun comics fun, featuring all the content we we didn't have a chance to cover on this episode. There's plenty to get into, so we will keep bringing those to you as often as we can. But until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.